0: I have this story that's a reoccurring story in my life, um, in my adolescence. And it just kept happening over and over and over again. The setting's different, the details are different, but the story's the same. And it has to do with this moment where my brother and I are together, and he has this brilliant idea about something awesome that we should do. And by we, it means me. And so, he always found a way to get me to do this thing. So, I remember this one time, we were skiing out west, and this is a long time ago, and uh, we were going up the chairlift, and we look, and there is this cliff that's there, as we're going up the ski lift, and it's back in the glades, and it's off the path, and he says, um, yeah, it'd be sweet to jump off that thing. And I was like, yeah, probably would, you're right, you know, I guess, <laughs> and uh, so he's like, why don't we on the way down, you know, we'll, uh, we'll go backcountry and come up behind that cliff and jump down. And I was like, yeah, you know, he's my older brother. So I was like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll follow you. You know, we get close, we, get, we go off, we're going through the trees. And he says, I'll tell you what, this is what we're going to do. There's like a gap between where we are and over there. And he says, why don't you ski around there? I'll go over here and stand here, and I'll take a picture of you going off of that thing. i don't know why but i did what he told me to do and i still have this amazing picture of me going off what you don't have is the picture of me after i landed <laughs> which i was really glad that he actually dropped the camera and came to see if i was okay instead of actually taking a picture because i wouldn't put it him. that story is repeated many times in my life in all sorts of scenarios most of which i i wish that i could take back you know um Many times we are asked to take risks in life. And sometimes we take risks because people ask us to. Sometimes that has to do with trust in relationships. where we're asked to trust someone and we're not sure that we can actually trust them. You know, there's this thing about trust and there's this thing about getting off the, the clear path and stepping out in a way that's like, uh, this is off the trail here. Um, this is different than the way... I understand life and the way it's working, and you're asking me to trust you this way. And in those moments, we all feel very uncomfortable. All of us feel that tension. And yet there's this thing about God, and there's this thing about life, that when we look back in our relationship with God, and when we look back across life, some of the most amazing moments are the ones where we actually trusted God in a way that took us out a little bit beyond the path. Now, granted, some of those times are the times where we got really hurt. And some of those times are where our hearts got tore apart. And some of the times we took financial losses. And, you know, just taking risk doesn't mean that things are going to go well by nature of the word risk. On the other hand, almost every adventure that you read about Whether it's in the scriptures or whether it's in a a classic novel, almost every adventure has to do with a moment when the person, instead of just walking through normal life, something disrupts that. Oftentimes it has to be, okay, I'm I'm taking a a path less traveled. I'm stepping out into a situation, something came at me that kind of disrupted life and I had to deal with it. And all of those are the beginnings of what an adventure is all about. And in faith... And in our relationship with God, it is 100% adventure. That's what it's built on. That's what it's about. See, God is not a boring God. God is not interested in making a boring people. God doesn't have a problem with the normal and the routine and the discipline. As a matter of fact, God really encourages it. But God also understands that when he made us as creative beings to be in his image... That there is a wild nature to faith that calls us on a journey that is willing to risk and to step out in ways that make us very uncomfortable and yet allow the kingdom of God to move forward. Some of us do have a little bit in us that really likes the adventure. I think all of us do to some degree. Some more than others. You know, there's people who were pioneers here in America who traveled across the country in order to, uh, explore the other side of the nation. You know, there's those who are the adventurers among us. And for them, sometimes the, the trust factor, the risk, isn't about going out and doing something crazy. It's about actually committing to something stable. You know what I mean? Like for some, it's like, oh man, I'm going to have a ball and chain. I, you know, and, that, and that's the risk. There's this, uh, there's this amazing novel that you know about that most people have heard of at this point called The Hobbit. You know about the story of The Hobbit. We, um, in our family, uh, read books together at times, listen to audiobooks together. We've already gone through The Lord of the Rings, but we just started The Hobbit as a family um, not too long ago. And the, the opening scene of The Hobbit, where it's talking about Bilbo Baggins, is describing a hobbit. And it's all, you know, about like fuzzy feet and being short. And being lo- like loving food and loving other hobbits and being really hospitable and it just paints this like cute, adorable, stable picture of a fun-loving foodie, you know. And that's like it's it's awesome. And then it's and then there's this one description that just like kind of encapsulates it all. And it's about the aversion to adventure, like that the the one thing that hobbits loathe that they don't like is adventure. And of course that's the beginning of one of the greatest adventures written in modern history of the Hobbit. You know, and, and he he eventually gets taken by Gandalf into this crazy, crazy adventure. Well, we talked last week about the fact that if you trace our spiritual lineage back, we find that there is a singular person who was called on an adventure. And his name was Abraham. And that our story is one that starts with his story. And Abraham was a land lover. He loved land, he loved to be on his land. But God called him to be a wanderer. And he called a guy who loved land to begin to wander because God wanted to establish something very new and something very different. And what we said last week is the fact that this whole picture of Abraham's life is one that's crazy because of the fact that it's living poetry and that the beginning of Abraham's life and the end of Abraham's life have a parallel and that the center points have parallels and that they all lead to kind of this wild poetry of his life, this symmetry of his life, and that the Hebrew writer captures it. It was probably Moses who's writing about him and captures it. And and what we were talking about is that God has poetry in our life. And to the extent that we are willing to walk in obedience to God, wherever he calls us, it allows the poetic nature of God to reveal himself in our lives. And that we can live in the storyline of God. Well, here's a great example of how this starts. The very first thing that God does with Abraham when he calls him out onto this adventure is he gives him a command. And here it is, okay? Why don't you, if you have your scripture, you can turn there. It's the, the very beginning of our text in Genesis chapter 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go! First of all, just go. Okay? So this is the first words that God speaks. Go! Go! What does Jesus say to the disciples? After when, he asc- when he's ascending into heaven? Go ye into all the world. Go is a very, very important word. I just want to stop there for a second and remind us as a church that we are called as Christians, as believers, as congregations, to go. To go. We are not called to stay. We are called to go. That doesn't mean leave. It doesn't mean leave one another. It doesn't mean leave God It means go into that which He calls us to. And we're a people on the move. So go. Go from your country, one, and your kindred, two, and your father's house, three, to the land that I will show you. Okay? So leave your land, leave your people, leave your family, go to a land that I will show you. What's really interesting the symmetry here is that when you when you turn to chapter 22 if you have your bible you can turn to chapter 22 for a second and this will be the last big command that God gives this is the end of the story of Abraham's life and we'll eventually get to this and so um at at the beginning of chapter 22 you know this is one of the grand stories of Abraham when he has this to, to he's called to sacrifice his son Isaac as bizarre as that sounds we'll get to it but in verse 20 in chapter 2 verse 21 it's Chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now listen to verse 2. And listen to this in comparison to the command we just heard. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Three-part command. Take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to this land, to this mountain, I will show you. In the beginning of the story, what God says is, leave your nation, leave your dad, leave your uh, people, leave your family, and go to a land that I'll show you. And at the end, he's saying, take your son, your only son, the one who you love, and go to a mountain, I will show you. And you see the parallels in how that language is being used. And what it's doing is it's setting up bookmarks at the beginning and the end of the story. And there's poetry all the way in between. And everything will work forward and backward from those two statements. Everything in Abraham's life is framed around two commands that God gives him. One at this moment when God says, go. And one all the way at the end where God again says, go. The first one is about leaving his father. The second one is about giving his son. It's all in a storyline of something that starts way before him and ends way after him and allows him to be a part of the grand story of God. And what happens, what's amazing is when God says, leave your home, your land, your father's place and, and, and go, what he's doing is he's starting a new family. But in this new family, God is the father. And you know how Absolutely essential it was to be rooted with your family because your family was the one who receives from God or receives from the father, you receive from your dad the blessing, the patriarchal blessing. And so there was this whole thing in that culture where you're receiving the patriarchal blessing. And so staying with your family is that's where all your wealth comes from, it's where your blessing comes from, it's all of that thing. But what God says is leave all of that, go and I will bless you. And then at the end, when God's giving him a new nation through his son, this one miraculous son that he gets, he says, give me that son. The whole point of Abraham's life, the whole adventure, is that he never ever gets to be in control, but he always gets to be blessed. And so whatever the path was that's kind of the normal path that seems like the controllable life, God consistently says you're not going to go down the normal path of just the the beaten path. Instead, I'm calling you into something else, and I'm going to bless you. We're going to do a whole other thing, and you're going to continue to release that to me. And that sets up the whole framework of Abraham's life. Now, here's the thing, all right? Now, how old was Abraham when God called him to leave his nation and his family? 75 years old 75 years old you know when it comes to people who go and do things for the lord when you look across the the history of the church my understanding from what i read is like about 90 percent of the most amazing things that have happened in the church have happened from people who were like 20 Like it's birthed from people who are like 20, like people who are like college-age students who get a hold of the truth of the Word of God and they believe it on this ideal level, on this pure level, and they just go, after it like the greatest missionaries they leave at that age you know the prayer meetings that birth that last for hundreds of years the great awakenings the great re- revivals all those things happen when some young adults or some teenagers get a hold of the truth of the word of god and they go to the mat and they're like god you said it and i believe it and we're just going to go after it and it's it has on one level it has the courage of youth that has nothing to lose On the other level, what it has is it has the life that's untainted yet by having seen much and acquired much. Because the life with God is the life of faith. And the more these eyes see, the harder it is to live by a deeper eye, the eye of faith. And we start to get stuck in the routine of what we see with our eyes and what we touch with our hands and, and the things that we can control. And so most of the time, the great exploits of faith happen through younger folk. I'm just reading this book right now called um, Fire Seeds of Spiritual Awakening. And it's about all the amazing revivals that God brought through student ministry. And how students on college campuses, when they got a hold of the word of God and started praying, and then you just see great mission movements happen out of it. You know, the whole uh, Moravian mission movement that w- led to global uh, evangelization, that the, the gospel got out to the rest of the world. That happened through a bunch of young people running out across the world. Jesus and his disciples, young people. You know? uh, it's amazing. And then there's the patriarchs that stand in contrast to that. When you look at Abraham and when you look at Moses... You look at people who are well-seasoned, who have lived life, who have seen a lot, and yet at the right time and in the right moment, God says, go. You know how hard that must have been for Abraham? 75 years old. And we might say, well, yeah, but he lived to be 175. True, he hadn't even hit his midlife crisis yet. Except for this, he and his wife were already past the age of childbirth. Their bodies developed the same way as ours did. And so it wasn't like, they weren't like pre-40 because their life was expanded. Their bodies were still the same as ours, they just lived longer on the back end. And they already had 75 years of experience and already had a good idea what they were doing with their life and all of that. And when they're 75 years old, when most are retired or retiring or stepping back or doing whatever and thinking about it, that's when God starts this journey. It's when He starts this journey. So I want to stop right here. And I want to invite you to think about the stage of life that you are in. And I want to remind you that no matter what stage you are in, there is no retirement in the kingdom of God. And in the greatest moments in the history of people following the Lord, there have been those who have been very old and have started an amazing journey of faith. The best works of the Apostle John happen late in life. And what I want to remind us is that the reason we stand here today in faith is because there was a 75-year-old man who essentially, if if you were to stop right now, and I, I don't want to challenge all of us, wherever you are in life, think about what if God asks you right now to consider making a major shift with your life and going overseas to do missions, to leave your country, to leave your family, and to go. Is God allowed to pull that card for you today and are we listening and are we asking and are we expecting that there's still something for us and i want to just remind us of that as we move on and uh realize that we are in that lineage all right what's amazing is when god calls him he doesn't give him much to work with he really doesn't he doesn't like this isn't like he's forming a contract with him Uh, where there's like, here's the rules. He eventually does. You know, eventually he forms a covenant with him. Eventually he tells him what the rules of the journey are and all that. This time he doesn't. All he says is, he's like, I'm going to bless you. It's going to be awesome. Go. That's essentially what he says. It's going to be awesome. This is going to be great. Go. Okay? And that's all he has to work with. Now, sometimes God doesn't reveal much about what's coming for us. And I think for many of us, we wish at times that if God is going to call us to go, that he would outline a little bit more. He'd give us a little bit more. I think there's a few reasons why God oftentimes doesn't reveal much for us. First reason, I'm going to give us a few reasons why. Why he doesn't always reveal more about our future. First is there's a really decent chance we wouldn't understand even if he told us. It's like teaching a kid algebra before you teach him arithmetic. You have to understand certain things before you understand other things. And when you're on a journey, there's no way that you can understand the journey, the, 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 the uh, decision that we have to make 10 decisions down the road when we haven't had to walk the journey to get there, you know? And so I think that's, every now and then there's that moment with our kids where we're like, you know, you just, we're trying to explain everything to you, but you just can't understand this one yet, you know? And I think that's the way it is with God. There's also another reason why I think God doesn't tell us about all the things in our future. Um, One is because of fear. I mean, you know that moment where um, you have to wait to go into the principal's office? Oh wait, none of you actually know that. (laughs) Where you have that surgery that's coming, and you're thinking about that surgery or that court date or whatever it is, that thing that you're worried about. You know, and I think sometimes it's God's grace that doesn't tell us what's in our future because then we'd have to sit there and obsess about it all the time. And when that time comes, we'll have the grace for it. But we don't need to know that. You know, we don't need to know that. We also tend to be a really impatient people. And so when God says, hey, this is out there, then we tend to be, you know, it's like a parent who doesn't know when to tell their kid about the exciting thing that's going to happen because they don't want to start the five-minute clock. That's like, are we, you know, are we there yet? Or like, has it been a week and a half yet? No, it's been like 30 seconds, you know, and that whole thing. And we tend to be that way with God, that if he puts something out in front of us, we tend to be extremely impatient. And I, I think in particular, what ends up happening is, is that we can very easily make the destination the point. Think about a, think about a family who is going on an RV trip. And they're just wanting to have a great time together as a family, travel around the country, and enjoy setting up camps, seeing these national parks, doing whatever. But the end destination is Disney. Don't tell the kid you're going to Disney. Because they're never going to enjoy the rest of the trip for what it is, right? I mean, like, every time they're in this national park that could be cool and beautiful, all of a sudden it doesn't matter because it's like, are we going to Disney? And this is so boring compared to Disney, you know? But if we don't tell them that, then they can enjoy the journey. And so God oftentimes in our life is limited in what he tells us out here because he realizes that we have this something inside of us that obsesses about the destination and can't actually be present in the moment with God. And so often we have this ability to miss everything that God's trying to reveal to us in the moment because we're so focused on what it is that we think is out there. And, and I think part of what that does is it leads us to this deep temptation that we have anyway, which is to be independent from God and to live the journey on our own. So if God says, all right, here's the journey, Tim. We're going to go to such and such a place in Alabama. And we're going to be there on such and such a date. So I punch that into my GPS. I put it in my car. I put it on my calendar. And then I go and live my life getting there. But what God actually wants is he wants to be The pilot. He wants to be in navigation with me. We're going on a journey. And while we might have a destination, he might also recognize, you know, there's a really cool restaurant over here I want to take you to. Or I want you to see the scenic overlook. Or, you know, there's this whole adventure over here that I want us to go on. And in our lives, when we get to the place where we think about our relationship with God is something in the future, then we tend to really miss the ability to stay tuned in to God's voice and walk presently with him. And that's a temptation for all of us. I think that for Abraham, one of the keys that we see is that he doesn't get anything from God. All he gets is, go. I'm going to do something awesome. It's going to be great. The things that God tells him are very vague. They're about like, there will be a a nation, there will be a land, there will be fame. Go. Go. No plan as to how to get there. Just go. Why does Abraham say yes? Why does he choose to listen and obey? If he doesn't know exactly what's out there, if he doesn't know how to get there, then I think that we have to come to terms with the fact that the real reason why Abraham wanted to go anyway is because Abraham wanted to go on a journey with God. That if God's like, this is the way I'm going, come with me, He actually wanted to submit to God and wanted to live life with God. And that the point wasn't the end. The point was actually sticking with God. And he was attentive to God's voice and submissive to God's voice so he could stay in connection with God. And it's a pretty amazing thing how this happens because any step, any journey that we take with God always starts with faith. And there's a couple reasons why any journey with God always starts with faith. And, and the first is because God's invisible. And so God's invisible, therefore we can't see him with our eyes. We see him with our, the eye of our heart. And, but we also can't understand God. And so the journey with God is one where faith and trust, these two words, faith and trust, have deep connections. Faith is being able to see the things that I can't see with my eyes. Trust is being able to rely on someone when I can't understand why. Right? So I'm trusting in the character of that person. I'm trusting in the character of God and in the wisdom of God, even though I can't understand what he's asking me to do. That is just the flip side of the coin of faith. I'm believing that God exists even though I can't see him. And I'm trusting that what God says is best, even though I don't understand it. So I think the, the, one of the reasons why I think God doesn't allow himself to be seen is because the whole nature of our relationship with God is having to rely on things that we don't understand. And so believing the, the first step in faith with God is just to believe that he exists. The second step, according to Hebrews, is that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And so believing in God, I don't see you, but I believe you, trusting God is... I don't understand, but I will follow. And our whole relationship with God has this built-in filter that says we can't control God in order to relate to God. I have to approach him from a way that's out of control. I can't see, I can't understand, I have to trust. That's good, it keeps him God and me the vassal down here who can't understand it. That's not God's control mechanism in my life because God's scared of me taking control. It's God's blessing to me that says the way I have to follow God is by understanding that he's in charge. Which means every ounce of my faith starts with me not understanding and yet choosing to obey. And that's what faith is. So each journey with God starts with this moment of faith. There's a a philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, maybe you've heard of him. He was a great philosopher and he has this thing called the leap to faith. That's not a leap of faith. Very different than a leap of faith is the leap to faith. And the leap to faith is this idea that you can take all the data and you can understand all the logic, but there's a moment that if you're actually going to have a living dynamic relationship with God, you have to choose to believe. And no matter how much evidence there is for God, all over the place, you will never prove God with evidence. You will prove God with faith. And there will be a moment when you're like, The evidence stacks up in favor of God. You know, it does because it's real and it's true. So all the evidence stacks up in that direction. But I actually have to choose at some point to believe and to trust God. And that's a matter of the heart. It's not just a matter of the mind. It's a matter of the will that says, I will choose to believe. That's not blind faith. The leap of faith means this doesn't make any sense and I'm going to choose to believe something that doesn't make any sense and it's just, that's just dumb. you know. The leap to faith is to say, this is very reasonable. God exists. God created the world. There's design all over the place. There's someone who has to know more than me. It's probably God. There's a history of people who have had faith and it's led them to be very loving people throughout the history of humanity. It all makes sense, but in order for it to become real for me, I actually have to leap to faith. And that doesn't happen just once, that happens all the time, over and over in each adventure. And when we choose to take a leap to faith, what happens is faith itself is something that grows through practice. And so when we have faith for God in one moment, it makes our ability to have faith in God for the next moment that much stronger. Okay, so we can see things, because since faith allows us to see the unseen, when I'm looking without faith at a situation, I'm like, I don't have any faith and I can't see anything, but then when I say, you know what, I'm going to believe that God exists, then I start to see God, and then God asks me to do something, and I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. I choose to trust God, and once I choose to trust him, I see how that worked, and I'm like, now I want to follow God. And then God, now I'm looking for what God wants. So I'm reading his Bible and saying, What do you want? I want to submit more of my life to you. And he reveals more of it. And I'm like, That's awesome. And then I'm starting to have joy and love. And I'm flowing and I'm growing in faith. Let me give you another example of this thing. I'm gonna, I got a couple pictures. We have this um, place, uh, uh, this place we like to jump off of a rock, okay, with our family. And a couple years ago, uh, I introduced the boys. There's a progressive set of rocks. That get bigger here i want to show you the picture this is a picture of colton and i jumping off the first rock okay and colton at first was he was worried about this he was worried about this rock. it's about 10 foot or something like that and so i'm holding on to his his hand and we're jumping off there you know and he's trusting me all right so then the next picture is him jumping off by himself now dad's watching right and he's like all right and he's still a little shaky now the next picture well, we just moved to a higher rock, okay? And now he's jumping off with dad again because it's like now dad's calling me to another step of faith, okay? Next picture, Colton is getting confident and starting to show off, okay? And he's feeling really good about himself. So then the next picture is Colton jumping off by himself off of a very high rock. And then finally, you will watch this last one. This is a video. And I don't know if you caught that. Can we hit that one one more time or not? Watch this. He's doing a little trick off at the top. Go ahead, fast forward. Yeah, anyway, he's doing this this trick. And by the end, he's so confident. But you think, like a few minutes before, he was scared to jump off a 10-foot rock. But then he's doing a trick off of a 35-foot rock, not that much longer. And that's because dad is with him, and he feels the confidence, and he's like, oh. And then he's like, well, I want to do that on my own. Oh, And then there's a bigger one, oh, dad, you know? And then, ah, I can do this. And then, man, look at what we did, you know? And it's exciting. But then what happens is, so all of that was a journey of faith, of trusting dad, and a great adventure in the process. But for me, like, that's just one journey of faith, one journey of trust. For me, that leads to another one where I say, I know, like, it can feel awkward to look at someone in the eye, an adult in the eye and talk to them and have a conversation with them. But I'll stand here with you and let's have a conversation where you're looking at that adult in the eye and we're having a normal conversation. And then it grows into, now you can kind of do that on your own. And we learn to grow and mature in different ways throughout life as we are called into maturity and trusting to do things that we're very uncomfortable doing as our authority, our Father, calls us into those moments. And Abraham, this first step in faith, is one that in some ways seems completely blind. But what's actually happening is God is choosing to tell this man that the most important thing in his life is to take a step in actually trusting him when he doesn't understand. And then there will be a whole lot more things that make sense. And then he can call him to trust more and more and more. One other way I want to frame this for us is um, there's this danger that when God asks us to do something, we have a filter in our mind that says, how? How are you going to do that, God? How's this going to work? And one of the things that I've learned over the last few years is never to ask God how until I've agreed with God about what. Until my heart agrees with God about what it is that he's saying, I'm never going to begin to understand how it's going to work. Here's an example in the New Testament. When the New Testament kicks off, the very beginning of the New Testament, there was two people who were, who were called to embrace something that God was saying with faith. Anybody remember what those two those two people are beginning of the New Testament? So Zechariah, John's dad, and then who was the other one? What was that? Mary. So there's two people who are going to have kids and it doesn't make sense. One's way too young and the other's way too old right and the one who's way too old when God says Zachariah you're going to have a baby he's like yeah that's not going to happen you know how in the world would you do that interestingly Mary also asks how but when Mary asks how she does it from a place of faith she's like okay so I'm going to get pregnant how's that going to work you know and so there's the curious nature of, I've agreed with you, but now, how's this going to work? Instruct me, lead me. As opposed to Zechariah. that's like, I'll believe it when you show it to me. One is full of faith, the other isn't. One is expecting that God's in charge and that God's right and that my job is to hear God's voice and submit to it. That's where Mary's heart was. That's why she was the mother of a whole other nation. Of the church, you know? It was amazing. Zachariah in line with the, with the history of the patriarchs before, struggles, struggles to, to come to grips with faith. And when he was sitting there offering that prayer in the temple for the first time in his old age, he did not expect God to show up and to talk to him because he had kind of got used to God not being in charge. And so when God showed up and told him to do something, he wasn't ready to receive it. But young Mary was seeking the Lord with all her heart and was just waiting for the next word from God. And when God spoke, she agreed. And once she agreed, she said, can't wait to see how this is going to work. And for us, it's always important when we're in our relationship with the Lord to say, what are you saying, God? What do you want? As soon as he's saying it, he's already revealed a bunch in here. So I have to agree with everything he says in here, whether I like it or not. And then I have to agree with where he's calling me and whether I understand it or not. And when I do, I start an adventure of faith. Verse 7, skip all the way to the end here. Um, verse 7 it says then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to your offspring I will give this land how did God communicate with Abraham this time and I keep using the word Abraham by the way instead of Abram because his name changes I don't have the mental discipline to wait to say Abraham it's just going to be Abraham the whole time Okay. Um, so uh, how does God reveal himself communicate to Abraham this time versus the first time you notice anything there In verse 7, he appeared. What does appear mean? He's visible. I don't know if that was in the physical or in the spiritual. I don't know if that was because God showed up in the physical or because Abraham uh, had eyes of faith now to actually see him. What I do know is, is that we get to see God to the extent that we trust and obey God. And the first time, he heard something that he knew was God. There was something in his heart. And it doesn't say how God spoke to Abraham. It doesn't say there was an audible voice. It doesn't say it was a dream. It doesn't say it was a vision. It doesn't tell us how God spoke to Abraham the first time as a matter of fact if you look at the text there's a modifier there and it says he had heard from God God had spoken there's actually a modifier you might have a footnote at the beginning of chapter 1 where it says Abraham had heard from God somewhere back there in his heart he knew that God was calling him to leave his country and at some point he builds up courage and he steps out in faith and does what God calls him to do and he says i'm going to take you to a land that i will show you he doesn't promise him that it'll be his land he doesn't not give him any promise like that. But now he shows up in this land and when he gets to the place where God told him he was supposed to go, once he gets there, he sees God. And all of a sudden, what had been a vague thing of him knowing God's voice back here becomes a visual thing place where he's like now i have eyes of faith now i'm seeing god it reminds me of job at the end of his journey when it said before my ears had heard of you but now my eyes have seen you and i repent in dust and ashes this is the moment in faith when we realize that we have a tendency to see our lives and to see ourselves and to kind of deal with the voice of god until we start trusting and obeying god then we start to see god all over the place as we grow in faith and then the moment is that Abraham is promised by God, this land that I brought you to, this land, it will be given. Who will it be given to? Offspring. Somebody said. it. Yeah, it's not given to Abraham. It's given to his offspring. Two really important pieces about that. One is, what did he have to leave? His land and his inheritance and his family. God says, I'm going to make you a nation and I'm going to give them this land and this will be the inheritance that you give them. I will be the patriarch. God will be the patriarch blessing you with way more than your father could have ever blessed you with as you walk in faith, trusting me. And as you obey me, I will bless the future and all of this land will be given to them. The other point that's really amazing about that is that Abraham was serving something that was, he wasn't going to see in his lifetime. And I love this. Hebrews talks about this very clearly. When it talks about refers back to Abraham, it says, Abraham sought for a country that he never saw. He sought for a city that wasn't built by human hands. And he sought for a country that he would never receive. And he didn't see the fulfillment of his promises. But he lived an awesome life. And it was enough. And he was excited because he knew that the legacy after him, that his children and his children's children would be blessed. And he knew that. And so legacy is a really important thing. And I just want to remind us that legacy doesn't come because of all of our amazing exploits in the flesh here. It doesn't come because of our wealth. It doesn't come because of our land. It comes when we have faith and we trust God. And when we choose to remember that we are children of the patriarch, then we end up blessing the next generation with the patriarchal blessing of God but we have to choose to trust and be kids. There's a thing about manhood or about adulthood or about being a patriarch or a matriarch where there's this sense of I have to do all of this to make sure that I can bless this way. That's an awesome thing, serving the next generation. But we always have to remember that the greatest way to bless the next generation is by remembering that we're children and that we obey God. And I think that when we watch people all the way through their life, all the way to the end, trust God with great faith, that leaves the best legacy. That leaves the best legacy. And the earlier in the journey we start taking those steps of faith, the deeper and further that faith can go. So if you're young, step hard, step strong. Go after God with everything you have. If you're old, you're not done yet. We need you to listen and to follow in ways that are unique to what God is calling you to as patriarchs and matriarchs. The best example I know of this, there's an author named John Huss, who wrote amazing literature. Hundreds of years later, that led to a guy named Martin Luther reading his books, which led to an amazing resurgence of faith, which led to a whole bunch of other guys, one of them being this guy named Count Zinzendorf, who was with the Moravians, started a world, global world mission movement, and started a 100-year, 24-7 prayer meeting. That prayer meeting touched a guy's life named John Wesley, who had the great awakenings all across the Western world, people coming to faith, and it leads to you sitting here. You know, it's amazing the legacy of faith and how that works. But it starts not because we're trying to build a nation not because we're doing something amazing. It starts because we're tuning into the voice of God and saying, I want to join the journey. I want to be a part of the story. I want to be a part of the poetry. I submit my life to God. And when you do, you look back and you watch every place that Abraham goes, and that's what verse 8 says, he builds an altar. He doesn't build a tower like the Tower of Babel building a kingdom. He builds an altar. And this is what I suspect, that as we trust God, and as we walk that journey of faith, our legacy is we look back over our lives and our lives are marked not by just those cool trips we took or those moments we had, but they're, they're marked by the moments where we trusted God and we saw God's faithfulness. And that's the legacy of a journey of faith. Step by step with an altar of worship at each moment in our life when we celebrate, that's when God showed up. And that leads into eternity and it continues on for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your kindness to us in adopting us into your family. I thank you, Father God, that uh, what we see with our eyes and what we understand with our minds, that there is another way of life that's deeper, fuller, more eternal, timeless. I thank you that the riches of the eternal God are given to the church and that when you invite us into that place of faith, that you ask us to come on the adventure and that we can trust you. There are people who we have trusted and have been hurt, but you have told us and you have shown us that every time we trust you, we will never be disappointed. And so God, I ask that if that comes to our finances, if that comes to our forgiveness in relationships, if that comes to stepping out into a new adventure that you call us to, whatever it is, God, that as you have laid out your principles for us and as you have laid out direction in our heart and as you lead and guide us, Holy Spirit, would you stir in us again and revive in us a deep belief that what we see is not the deepest reality, that what your word speaks and what your spirit leads is the guidance into the eternal life and that by your grace we stand not just as children of men and women but as children of God standing in the eternal blessing of the eternal God. So God, fill us again with faith. Give us a hunger to know your word and to know your direction. God, give us the courage of Abraham and the trust and the faith to follow. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Have a great week.